Welcome to Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters. I'm Michonne Boston. And I'm Tequina Boston. We're your hosts and real-life sisters who binge on historical drama. We'll talk about films, fictional adaptations, and dramatic series as windows to the past and mirrors of the present. So fill your teacup or mug with your favorite sip as we explore what's fact, what's fiction, and the so what on historical drama with the Boston Sisters. I'm Michonne Boston. And I'm Chiquina Boston. Welcome to Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters, where we talk about historical films and dramatic series as windows to the past and mirrors of the present. Listen to past episodes and sign up for our newsletter on our webpage at michonnebostongroup.com backslash Boston Sisters to stay up to date on new episodes and bonus content. In this podcast, we're talking with Carla L. Peterson, author of the 2011 book, Black Gotham, A Family History of African Americans in 19th Century New York City. Professor Peterson's book served as a resource for the creation of the characters, story, and the Black community in HBO's The Gilded Age. In 2022, we devoted two bonus episodes of historical drama with the Boston Sisters to talk about women in power in the Gilded Age. You can find our bonus content wherever you subscribe to your favorite podcasts. Created and written by Downton Abbey's Julian Fellows, The Gilded Age is set in the year 1882 in New York City. The series dramatizes the tensions between old money New York society and the new money of the industrial barons who rose to power after the Civil War. We were intrigued by the characters Peggy Scott, played by Danae Benton, and her mother Dorothy, played by Audra McDonald, and father Arthur Scott, played by John Douglas Thompson. We meet Peggy Scott in the first episode, an aspiring writer, at a crossroads returning home to Brooklyn to seek answers to a troubled past. In the meantime, Peggy is hired by New York aristocrat Agnes Van Ryan, portrayed by Christine Baranski, as Agnes's personal secretary. Peggy sets her ambitions higher and lands a job as a journalist with T. Thomas Fortune's newspaper, The New York Globe, one of the most influential publications among the black press. This doesn't impress Peggy's father, Arthur Scott, a formerly enslaved man who's risen in prominence in his community as the owner of a pharmacy, a business he wants to pass on to his daughter. His wife, Dorothy, comes from a family of free persons of color. Dorothy teaches music and hopes having her daughter back home will lead to a resolution of their past, which has separated them over the years. We anticipate learning more about Peggy Scott and her family in season two of The Gilded Age, which is expected to premiere in 2023. We now begin our conversation about Black Gotham and the inspiration for the Scott family with Carla L. Peterson. Carla Peterson is Professor Emerita in the Department of English at the University of Maryland College Park and a specialist in 19th century African-American literary and cultural studies. In addition to Black Gotham, a family history of African-Americans in 19th century New York City, published in 2011, she has published numerous essays and a second book, Doers of the Word, African-American Women Speakers and Writers in the North, 1830-1880. For Black Gotham, Peterson has appeared on C-SPAN Book TV, wrote for the New York Times online disunion project, as well as its City Room page. Carla Peterson is currently at work on a new project, Urbanity and Taste, The Making of African American Modernity in Antebellum, New York and Philadelphia. Welcome, Carla, to Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so pleased to be here. 
What compelled you to write Black Gotham and for whom? So um, as I thought about the question, there are actually many different answers. Um, Obviously, so this is a family history and it's about my 19th century um, ancestors in New York City. Um, So obviously one of the, the primary reason maybe is personal. Um, I wanted to find out more about my family. I think all of us um, want to find out more about our families. And people had been urging me to do this for a while, but I just didn't know where to begin. And one day I was browsing through a volume of the Black abolitionist papers, and in a footnote, I came across the name of Philip Augustus White, who happened to be my great-grandfather. And that led me to believe that there was a historical record about him um, that that I could find, I could research and find. I think one of the reasons why I had not pursued family history was that my family had not kept any papers um, or they didn't see, they really didn't. I mean, along the way, I found a couple of letters, but there was, and, and there was no discussion. There was no oral history. Um, about Philip Augustus White or his parents or the family that he, the the family of the woman into whom he married. And I think that made me feel that it was impossible to find um, anything until I came across this note. Um, So that's the personal reason, but there are also reasons um, in terms of scholarship or in terms of history. Um, One is that I think even to this day, we tend to privilege um, Southern plantation slavery over the Northern urban um, free Africans, right, in the 19th century. And I wanted to point out that there were free Blacks in the North um, in urban cities. Um, There is, I've discovered since, Um, Blacks all over in, you know, in rural areas as well, and they need to get a lot more attention. Um, I wanted to then focus in on New York State and New York City, which is where my ancestors are from, hence the title Black Gotham, and let people know that slavery was not abolished in New York State until 1827, which is very late. Um, for Northern states. The other thing I wanted to do was dismantle what I call the Harlem model, which is the idea that um, Harlem, which we all know so well, provides the model for all black neighborhoods and communities. That is, it's a bounded geographical area, um, overwhelmingly, you know, 99% um, African-American, Um, And that neighborhood and community are uh, coterminous. They're they're kind of the same. And what I wanted to point out was that, in fact, Blacks, African-Americans came into New York City the same way that everybody else did. They started all the way down at the tip of Manhattan and gradually moved their way up. And in lower Manhattan, uh, neighborhoods were not, at least not in the antebellum period before the Civil War, they were not strictly segregated. You had whites and blacks living within the same neighborhood, maybe, you know, not on the same block, but block to block, Um, but even sometimes on the same block, or you had um, in those row houses, uh, blacks who lived in the bottom, in the basement rooms, and whites who lived um, above. So that is one thing I wanted to point out. And the other thing I wanted to point out, and in a sense, you know, the book is, I could have called it pre-Harlem, but by calling it pre-Harlem, I'm centering Harlem, and that's what I did not want to do. So it's pre-Harlem in the sense that I just mentioned, but it's also pre-Harlem in that there was an educated, literate class. There was a tradition of culture, of intellectual thinking and so forth. Um, You know, black uh, um, urban or kind of high culture um, didn't start with with James Weldon Johnson or Du Bois, but started long before with some of the people I talk about 
um, in, in my book. Um, the other thing I wanted to do was really, um, and I think a lot more work is being done on this now, the idea of family history or family studies as a valid historical methodology. And I recently was shown an article written by somebody, I can't remember the name, about the value of looking at history through the lens of family history. So that became really important to me. Then as I went along and started talking to people, I realized that there was another reason why I was doing this. So many people, and particularly people in general, but in particular African-Americans, think that there's no way that they can find their history, that it's lost forever, that there are no archives, there's no documentation, and they can't recover their family history. And I wanted to point out that with, you know, a lot of hard work um, and digging, that that was actually possible. And again, circling back to the idea of family, I wanted to show African-Americans um, especially, you know, the whole idea of family has been so vexed in our culture, um, especially in the 19th century, um, you know, that black people were not family oriented. They didn't know anything about love and nurture and the ties that bind. And so, of course, you can sell, you know, down in Southern plantation society, you can sell off a mother or father or child or whatever. And I wanted to show that families, they didn't necessarily have to be nuclear, but there was a family structure that really, among African-Americans, that was really kind of the backbone um, of our culture and society. One of those things I know, it's, it's like a cousin can be as close to you as a sibling. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And aunts and uncles can be your parents and, you know, and even non-kin members, you know, yes. you can bring in non-kin members who act as, you know, who become family. Um, but that's a really important structure. And, you know, the 19th century, the thinking was, well, Black people, they don't care about family. They don't know anything. So, yeah. What's great about reading Black Gotham is that it is a myth buster with regard to Black history and Black families. And I was impressed by the, um, even the way you described your process of discovery, that you had to be a detective and you had to take basically fragments and then from those fragments be able to put a story together and, and trace kind of a narrative line of your family. So could you talk a little bit about what were the resources that you were able to find that enabled you to construct this narrative of your family? Sure. So I think I said earlier on, and I'll repeat, I didn't have any family stories. It wasn't like, you know, my family sat around the dining room table and we talked, they talked to us about, you know, the 19th century. And I really don't understand quite why, because this is an illustrious history. Um, you know, and I, I remember somebody saying to me um, at one point, oh, you know, Carla, Black families, we don't like to clank our chains. Well, the story that I tell, you know, it go, going show us as a slave, right, having a slave past. And there was obviously a slave past in my family before the 19th century. But they, it, slavery was not, you know, it was a northern... Uh, urban elite. So I really didn't understand why they didn't hang on to that history and pass it down to us. So I had, <clears throat> I had one story and it turned out to be false. I was told that my great grandfather, who is really the center of the book, and he is the model for Arthur Scott in The Gilded Age. Um, I was told that he was born in Haiti, that his name was Philippe Auguste Blanc, and that at some point he went to Paris, became a pharmacist, and then arrived in the United States. And this was not, I mean, there's a little bit of truth in that story, but not a lot. So he was actually born in the United States um, as Philip Augustus White, 
His father was named Thomas White and he was from England. His mother was a black woman named Elizabeth Steele from Jamaica. And I don't know how they met or whether they were actually married or whatever. But that's just to show you that I had so little to go on. And as you said, I had to really become a detective. Um, And so, uh, you know, there's all kinds of data out there or documentation. And you can start with the facts. So if you look at census, if you look at birth certificates, certificates, marriage, um, death, you get a lot of facts, you get dates and names of places. But what one really wants to do is to find stories, to be able to flesh out these facts with stories. And there I, you know, I think I relied mostly on intuition. Um, And I would just go into an archive like the Schomburg um, and, you know, I looked at a lot of newspapers. Um, I looked at the proceedings of um, conventions um, that were happening in the 19th century. I looked at, um, uh, what else did I, minutes of meetings. Um, and then I would come across the rare manuscript and sometimes um, letters and so forth. But it was really through a lot of digging. And what I often say when I'm giving talks is that if you if there's no front door to go through, you know, if there isn't the house of archives, then you can just go through the front door. You have to take a side door, a back door. You go in through, you know, through a window. You go down the chimney. So you look at you look at all kinds of documents, including maybe you know white documents held by uh, white institutions. Um, And you find out a lot of information um, that way. Uh, Another really great resource, um, unlike any of my prior work, I became much more image or visual conscious. So somebody told me early on, you're not going to find necessarily, you know, the house of this person or that or the other, but look for the image, the... um, uh, the painting or the the sketch uh, of, of a famous building, of a well-known building, and then look at what's in the side. You know, it's generally not standing alone, but there's stuff that's surrounding. And that's how I, I found some really, Im- some images that really, um, you know, brought 19, early 19th century Black New York um, to life. Um, there is serendipity. So what happened one day was I wanted to find out more about a man by the name of Peter Ray, who is, um, I'm not descended from him um, because uh, his daughter was the second wife of Peter, of somebody, and I'm, I'm born from the first wife. But he was a, um, I knew that he worked for the Lorillard tobacco family. And so I went up to the tobacco division at the New York Public Library, um, the Aaron's collection, and I got a little pamphlet. I think it was dated 1845. And I was going through it, and it was a recipe for making snuff. And that was what the Lorillards were really famous for. And I'm typing away, you know, writing down all the ingredients. And after I don't know how many pages. I'm like, what are you doing? This is not going to help you in your book. I'm going to I'm going to give back the pamphlet. And I picked it up. It slipped from my hands and fell on the floor, the wrong side up. And I was like, oh my God, they're going to throw me out of this archive. And I picked it up and I opened it. So the back from the back rather than from the front. And there was a page about Peter Ray the mulatto man who started as an errand boy um, for the Lorillards at age 11 and made his way up and was now working with their snuff. And he was a great, he knew how to pick this, separate out the different kinds of tobacco leaves, what was best made for snuff. And you can find him at, and they gave the address. And I'm like, oh my gosh. So serendipity is, I think, also 
you know, something really important. And the last thing I'll say is you mentioned fragments before, and we have to realize and acknowledge, I call it scraps in my book because there are a lot of mentions of scraps and their scrapbooks. But rather than be disappointed and say, I only have a fragment or I only have a scrap, we should really take the scrap seriously and really think about, so what does it mean that it's only a scrap? Um, what, why is there just a scrap? Why is there not more? You know, and what does the silence mean? And I think that that's really important. So I do do a lot of speculation in my book, um, as you know. And historians say to me, I'm a literary critic by training. Historians say, well, we can't do that. But if we don't speculate, we'll never write anything, right? So I think that the scraps can be really powerful tools for uh, filling in gaps, but even if not, for imagining and for speculating. Yes, yes. I think um, one of the um, one of my friends who does theater research, specifically design, um, talks about the fact that so many items from the Black theater were either reincorporated into other productions or people took them and they're sitting in somebody's uh, trunk and they don't know that this was from this production or whatever because that ancestor is no longer around right. to identify right. it. Right. And yet I think there are a lot of, as you say, scraps yes. that are holding history for yes. us. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So like many families, we were inspired specifically by Roots to go look for our family history. And we knew that on my mother's side that their roots were in Virginia. And we went to the library in Culpeper and found a book called The Colored People of Culpeper, Virginia. And um, specifically looking through one of my mother's maternal ancestors, found her family back to the late uh, 18th century, their names, including uh, who they were quote unquote last owned by. And when my mother saw that history, her response was, I feel like I belong to something. And so we're curious about what was the impact of, of finding these scraps and putting these stories together for you in terms of, um, you know, who you are, uh, your identity and, and who you uh, see yourself as in the world. Was there, was there some shift that happened as you were discovering this family history? Very definitely. So I was brought up a cosmopolitan. Um, at the age of five, my father worked in international public health. When I was five years old, we moved to Beirut, Lebanon, so that he could work on the Gaza Strip uh, on the condition, the health conditions of the Palestinian refugees. And after that, after about two and a half, three years, we moved to um, Geneva, Switzerland, um, which was where the United Nations was and the headquarters of the World Health Organization. So I grew up, you know, a little black girl, a little African-American girl in Beirut, Lebanon and in Geneva, Switzerland. And I felt that I didn't belong anywhere. Uh, not, it was just um, the Peterson family. And I have two older sisters and they were my tribe. And we were like a little nation unto ourselves, the three of us. And so when I started this research, um, I discovered that I actually had roots and it was very, very powerful. Um, I remember, so the place where Philip Augustus White, there are two places where he lived early on. Uh, at the home where he lived on Vanderwater Street for a very long time was demolished. It's now one police plaza. And then there was his, so, you know, I couldn't find anything there. Um, and then there was his pharmacy um, that was on the, Frank, on the corner of Frankfurt and Gold Street. And I remember going down there and it is now 
the um, it, it's the beginning of the bridge of the Brooklyn Bridge. So it's the ramp up to the Brooklyn Bridge. It's not a street either, but I stood there and it's not there. I just stood in that one corner thinking, oh my gosh, I feel so rooted. I feel so rooted to this one corner. I just, I can't move. And that was really remarkable. And it's where I found, you know, an identity, which is really, I'm a New Yorker. Um, although, you know, I haven't lived there since I was five. We, we do, um, I do have an apartment. My husband and I have an apartment there now. Um, and I feel he was, he's a New Yorker. And I'm like, yeah, I'm a New Yorker too. So that was really great. But the other thing I thought about when that was so interesting is that in doing the research, I found out that Black New Yorkers were themselves cosmopolitans. So I took this one street, Collect Street, which is now Center Street, and my great-great-great-grandparents lived on it along with two other families, the Crummels and the DeGrasses. And if you put those six, um, uh, six, those three couples, six people together, they come from every single continent um, in, the, uh, in the world. So uh, from England, George de Grasse was from Calcutta. Joseph Marshall was from Maracaibo, Venezuela. Um, Maria de, uh, Surly de Grasse was of Dutch and Moroccan ancestry. So that really also shed light on how we have to unpack this notion of blackness. Like, what does that mean? And to realize how cosmopolitan their backgrounds are. And then in my investigation, I also found out the degree to which um, Philip White in particular um, was really invested in kind of cosmopolitan culture, um, that he had a book, he had Shakespeare in his library, he had Dante, uh, he became a member of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in uh, 1974-75. Um, and so it was kind of like a closing of the loop. You know, you, I'm cosmopolitan, then, oh, I'm a New Yorker, and I'm rooted to that one little tiny spot. But then, oh, we're all cosmopolitan all over again. Um, so that was, that was really um, important. Uh, two other little things. Um, I discovered how many people in my family were um, scientists, right, pharmacists. So that was my great-great-grandfather, Peter Guignon, my great-grandfather, Philip Augustus White. My father was a doctor, Jerome S. Peterson. Uh, one of my sisters, Dana Peterson, is a doctor. And my daughter, one of my daughter, Julia, is a doctor. So I'm like, there's a real... Um, tradition in my family of, of medicine and medical service. And then finally, one of my favorite characters, Maricha Lyons, who's I think my great grand aunt, uh, was a writer and tried and wrote an autobiography. It's, it's kind of in um, draft form. It's at the Schomburg and the title is Memories of Yesterday, All of Which I Saw and Part of Which I Was, an Autobiography. So her father, Albro Lyons, had asked her to write a family history, and that's what she did. And I'm like, so I'm not in the lineage of, of, the, of the medical people, but I'm in Rich's lineage. Yeah. You're in the mix. I'm in the mix. Yeah. In the mix. It's, a, yeah. it's a beautiful yeah. continuity there. Yeah. Yes. And that was, that was thrilling. You know, from having grown up, like, you know, in all these very foreign places and feeling that, you know, we were a nation of three people, my sisters and I, and that was it. And that we had to, you know, make something out of our little threesome and to discover that there was actually a whole tradition. Yeah. One of the great takeaways, and I, I would say the ahas that I'm learning from like your book, Carla and other books about the 19th century is learning that New York City, even though it's a northern city, was not the promised land for African Americans during the 19th century. 
And in Black Gotham, you do write about how New York City's economics are tied to the Southern economy, uh, which was still using enslaved persons um, to build that economy. So who is profiting from slavery in New York City and how did that influence the politics and social relations for African-Americans, white working class people and immigrant communities in New York? Well, the people profit are the white elite, the merchant class. So slavery had been abolished um, and slave products were not grown in New York, um, but they were shipped. So New York was a port city and cotton, tobacco and other slave products um, you know, got shipped up to New York um, and then went out from the ports of New York to, you know, different places um, in the United States, to Great Britain, to whatever. So they were the great, um, they were the ones, the, the, the merchant class, the, uh, the white merchant class were the ones who really profited um, from it. What happens as a consequence is that you have this underclass of African-Americans and of immigrants, um, especially um, Irish, and there's competition at this very lowest level uh, for jobs. But um, the white working class, and in particular the Irish, um, carve out certain trades as their own and police them and don't let blacks in. And so one is cartmen, the, you know, carting stuff around the city. And the other is on the wharves being a longshoreman. And those were jobs for whites only. So um, it's not just slavery, it's, you know, capitalism in general that is keeping the um, uh, African-Americans and poor immigrants um, down and out. The result, of course, is um, that you have extreme anti-Black sentiment in New York. I mean, because along with the economy, you know, there's an ideology and there's this very virulent anti-Black sentiment um, just flooding New York. Um, and that eventually leads to notions later on in mid-century of um, scientific racism. Um, science, so-called science has proved to us that Blacks are inferior because of the size of their skulls, because of the whatever, their phenotype, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but what you have then is a very um, fraught, dangerous and fraught place for African-Americans. So you have the race riots, the most, in, the most notable one um, is the draft riots of 1863, which again, you know, um, the uh, Abraham Lincoln has instituted a draft uh, to fight uh, the uh, for for soldiers to go fight in the Union Army against the Confederates, blacks are not allowed to be soldiers because I guess racist ideology says they're cowards, they don't know how to fight, etc. And um, so there, it, uh, uh, there's a draft act, and um, with the poor are going to whites are going to be conscripted because you could pay $300 and get out of the draft, which is what the white elites did. And so there's this, you know, very uh, horrible uh, uh, race riot that lasts for a week in mid-July of 1863. But even before that, in 1834, you have a, a really a terrible um, riot in, in New York City. Um, you have what kidnappings, so um, which it, that it early on was called blackbirding. So you have kidnappers who come up from the South and they're looking for escaped slave and, you know, hunting them down and kidnapping them. And if they're not an escaped slave, but they're black and they don't have their papers on them, well, we'll take them as well. So even for the black elite, uh, New York City is a place of insecurity. Um, during the antebellum period, and life is precarious. Um, so I found a note that my great-great-grandfather, Peter Guignon, was, you know, part of the elite in 
I think the 1850s, he's writing to his brother-in-law saying, I can't repay the money that um, I owe you uh, because I don't have it, you know, but please be patient with me. So it's a precarious time. But what Blacks do then is organize, and they organize, I would say, in two ways. One is joining the abolition movement um, founded by um, William Lloyd Garrison, but then the New York, the head of the abolition in New York are the Tappan brothers, Arthur and Louis Tappan. Um, and, you know, um, fighting for abolition, for anti-slavery, um, you know, vehemently opposed to the Fugitive Slave Act and so forth. But the other thing that I think is really important is the issue of the right to vote. So, and that is what really galvanizes uh, Black politics in the antebellum period. So up until 1821, Black men had the right to vote in New York City or New York State. And as... Um, Blacks are being emancipated. New York State Legislature has this real fear that Blacks are going to start flooding the state, whether they're coming from other parts of the United States or whether they're coming from the Caribbean. So they pass an amendment in 1821 saying that uh, Black men needed to have a freehold estate of $250 and be able to pay tax on it. Um, otherwise, they would not be able to vote. And this was distinctly for colored men or for men of color. So all of a sudden, from having one of the really important rights of citizenship, right, the right to vote, um, it's taken away, you know, in a second, in a nanosecond from them. And so that becomes a galvanizing force for Black men throughout New York State. One is to get that money, you know, to have a freehold estate of $250, which kind of explains the really entrepreneurial spirit of Black New Yorkers of the period. Um, and the other to fight for the restitution of this franchise, regardless of that $250. It's like, why should we have to do that, you know, if others don't? And that really becomes the galvanizing force of Black politics in New York State in ways that it's not, not present in other states. Uh, Massachusetts Black men always have the right to vote. Uh, Pennsylvania, it's taken away in 1838. So it's really um, this issue of Black male suffrage is really at the core of much of black politics, um, you know, in the period. And it comes out of that fear that emancipated slaves were gonna flood the state and skew voting patterns. You've been enjoying Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters, a podcast where we talk about historical drama series and films as windows to the past and mirrors of the present. Visit our webpage at michonbostongroup.com backslash Boston Sisters. Share this podcast. Join our historical drama community by signing up for our newsletter to stay up to date on future episodes and bonus content. Now, back to our podcast conversation. Well, let's turn to the Gilded Age. Julia Fellows who's the creator of both Downton Abbey and the Gilded Age, said your book, Black Gotham, inspired the story for Peggy Scott and her family and the Black community we see in the series. And in an interview, I'm quoting, he says, this was a narrative that was quite new to me because I had rather accepted the more usual narrative that the Black population was trying to struggle out of slavery, trying to recover from the persecution of slavery. So you mentioned that Philip Augustus White was the person who inspired Peggy's father, Arthur Scott. Do you see other aspects of your family history in the series and its characters? So, uh, first of all, I, I actually think that the Black family, the Scott 
subplot is maybe the most interesting part of the Gilded Age. And I have to say, I think that Julian Fellows did a really good job. Um, I often wonder, he's British, right? And I wonder whether an American would have had the idea, just the idea to go looking for black New Yorkers who might've participated in the Gilded Age. I think the fact that he decided to go look is very telling and I'm not sure, I think it might have come from somebody who's not an American, right? Who lives outside of our borders and who brings uh, a fresh, a different, uh, non-presumptuous, a non-assuming, you know, take on black life. So that that's something I don't know, but it's something I've often wondered about. So in terms of the street scenes, I think, I'm not sure, but I think that he located it, it what was called um, at the time, colloquially, the, the Black Belt, which is what it would be today, the Fort Greene area. But that is very much, he did a great job of recreating um, the, 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 the street and the street scenes. Um, I think the home as well, um, the houses and the interiors, he did a very, very good job at. He changed, he made some changes from the character, the historical figure of Philip Augustus White to Arthur Scott in ways that um, I think were necessary. And I debate this with my friends who say, oh, he didn't want to engage with the complexity of history. But, you know, um, this is a historical drama television. So one of the things my uh, Philip Augustus White was not born in slavery. He was born free in New York City to a white British father. And I do understand why uh, Julian Fellows decided to have him come out of slavery. And there were people at the time. Um, T. Thomas Fortune, who is the, um, uh, 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 the newspaper man, uh, he was born in Florida and his parents had been slaves. And I don't know, he might have been a slave at one point too, but, you know, he came from slavery. Um, and so I understand doing that. And I think that was probably the right thing to do. The other thing is because he was, you know, he had a white father. Philip Augustus White was extremely light skinned. Um, you know, very, very fair. And he could have passed, and I do believe he engaged in what we would call strategic passing. You know, you're someplace and you're like, okay, all right, yeah, sure, I'm white. You're telling, you're assuming I'm white? Okay, fine. Um, but imagine having, presenting a free, a, a white-skinned, <laughs> a, a free black man as the father, as Peggy's father, I, you know, I just don't think that that would have worked. So um, I really, um, I really thought those were necessary and proper changes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah we did a, a podcast on the um, Nella Larson, adapt, the adaptation of Nella Larson's passing novella with um, Emily Bernard. Um, so we talked about those. Um, what, what did you strategic? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, strategic yeah. passing. Yeah. Strategic passing, yeah. which I, I'm going to have to note that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think too, what, um, how that functions and Michelle and I have talked about this in the plot line of the Scott family are looking at generational differences that translate into ideological and aspirational differences. And um, for instance, um, Arthur Scott, like many first generation professionals, you know, and, and family people are very interested in the economic security of their children. And Peggy, who was not born into slavery, has a different view of what her life could be. And we were talking about, because we always look at the 
um, mirror aspects of these dramas. We see also some of those ideological and class-related conflicts that you also talk about in Black Gotham, like how people viewed the Black elite. And um, so where do you see some of uh, what you wrote about in Black Gotham um, and in that we've, we've talked about a little bit of about continuity in terms of your family, but where do you see some of that continuity in terms of some of the ideological and generational conflicts that we're even still debating in um, African-American Black community today? Yeah, so um, I think that class is definitely, right, one. Um, and issues of, of class and uh that for Arthur, he can't assume it is, I think, as you said, in ways that Peggy can. Um, I think that uh, gender is another thing. Um, You know, uh, would he have treated Peggy quite the same way if she had been a a boy, a son? Um, Or is it her gender that makes him want to marry the, you know, the right kind of person um, and settle down and, you know, um, have economic security, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I definitely see some of that. And again, um, you know, Arthur is so focused on economic security and Peggy has got a, I think a broader vision Um, And actually, you could say that maybe that also comes out of her education. So Arthur, like all parents and like all Black parents, wants to give his daughter the best education possible, but the education takes her in a certain direction, you know, that he was, that for him is unexpected. Um, and, And so that she's interested in writing and writing about black people and having it disseminated and um, you know much more into dissemination of information and knowledge. And he's really um, interested, as we said, in the economics um, uh, uh, of it. So I think that that's, that that's something. Um, if I can go a little bit to the side of what you're talking about, there are several things that about um, the Black family about the Scots that really interests me, or about Peggy that really interests me. One is her education. And I don't know whether Julian Fellows knows this, but there is a direct lineage. So if Peggy went to ICY, the Institute Colored Youth, which is um, what she says, the head of the female department up until the late 1870s, I think, or maybe not quite that far up, but sometime in the 1870s, was Sarah Maps Douglas. And she was from a very eminent uh, Philadelphia family uh, whose parents and her parents' circle had all been invested in education. So her parents, Robert and Grace Douglas, and the Fortins, the famous sailmaker, James Fortin, and his wife, I think her name was Harriet, Char- Charlotte, I don't know, um, had started private academies for um, Black youth in Philadelphia. And one was the Augustine Academy. And Sarah Maps Douglas, um, I think she started her career teaching there So we're talking about the 1830s. And by 1840, that had become a female academy. And it was Sarah Maps's school, and she was the head of it. So she was the principal of the the Augustine Academy starting in 1840 about. And then in 1850, she goes over to the Institute for Colored Youth um, and is there until the 70s. So she would have been um, she would have been Peggy Scott's teacher. And the other thing that really impressed me was 
the scene where um, Mrs. Van Ryn decides to take almost, you know, um, at first sight, starts to take Peggy, decides to take Peggy on um, as her as her secretary, right? And yeah. it's when uh, she, uh, Mrs. Van Ryn asks, who is old money, right? She's old New York. And she asks Peggy to write down the address of her parents in case she needs to take, in case she needs to contact them, you know, because of the storm, et cetera. And Peggy is reluctant to, and then she does. And the first thing Mrs. Van Ryn says, the first thing is, my, what elegant handwriting you have. And so one of the things I've actually been doing in my research is studying antebellum handwriting. And um, I have many samples of Sarah Maps Douglas's handwriting. And so I know exactly where that handwriting comes from. So the other thing I wanted to say is that in the work that I've been doing, Hanmar, so this is a time at which um, print is really exploding, print culture, right? And books are being published and people are buying books and reading them, you know, white and black and so forth. So you could think that this is a way that in which manuscript writing becomes less important, everything's going to be printed. But on the other hand, it's um, it also, you could see it as a way in which it becomes more important because if you are a person of distinction, you still have to know how to write. And um, so to me, handwriting is a marker of taste, of gentility, of refinement. And if Mrs. Van Ryn says, you have good handwriting, she knows what she's talking about. So the last point I wanna make here, and this is because I'm writing a book about taste, is Mrs. Van Ryn is so interesting because she is the arbiter of taste. And from her point of view, think about her. Taste is not reserved for wealthy white people. Taste can be, uh, can, can come from anybody and be cultivated by anybody. And this is in a tradition that goes back to the 18th century and notions of taste in the 18th century that comes from Scottish philosophy, that you're born with what they call the moral sense and taste is part of it. You're born with it, but you need to cultivate it. And what I think Mrs. Van Ryan is saying is anybody can cultivate taste and have it. And it's not about class, it's not about race, it's not about gender. So Peggy has taste and she recognizes it and brings her into her home. Bertha Russell, does she have taste? <laughs> really? <laughs> she can buy it. <laughs> she can buy anything she wants, but it's it's not taste. And I thought I think that that's really what the series, at least the first season was all about, was about who has taste and who doesn't. And I really, you know, I think that's really pretty remarkable. <laughs> that's interesting. I remember there was a time when people would refer to people who have taste or refinement as being cultured. Yes. Yeah. Yes. The word cultivation is all over the place. And I have a quote from this 18th century Scottish philosopher, Lord Kames. And for him, he, it's, it's the image of the soil and the plant. So, you know, the, the soil um, has to be the right kind of soil. And then it has to be, so the soil ha has to be fertile and not sterile. And then the, you have to cultivate, cultivate the plant. This brings us to what we call our lightning round, uh, where we ask our guests questions that are related to the topic of the podcast conversation and our theme around 
um, window to the past and mirror of the present. So given the research you've done on your family history, if you could go back to the 19th century, which of your ancestors would you like to have a conversation with? Well, Philip White, of course, um, because, uh, you know, uh, his father died when he was about 11, and he and his mother were quite poor. They were siblings. I don't know a lot about the siblings. Um, but he, you know, made something of himself. He went to the pharmacy, the College of Pharmacy of the City of New York, and, you know, got a diploma in pharmacy at a time when you didn't need any kind of certificate or paper. You could just hang out a shingle and say, I'm a pharmacist, and that was it. Um, and really worked hard and made a lot of money. Um, was good to the people in his neighborhood in what was called the swamp, um, which was by the 1850s, um, mainly Irish, or there were a lot of Irish. And, you know, they were very poor and he was very helpful to them. If they couldn't pay, you know, okay. Uh, he gave them, you know, um, uh, clothes and food and so forth and so on. And then later in his life, really, or along with that, becomes very interested in culture. And he's got Shakespeare and Dante in his library. He helps to found the Mendelssohn Music Club, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the other would be Maricha Lyons. She would be another one because, after all, um, I'm descended from her, right? So the idea that she was writing and was writing this autobiography. Um, and she was a school teacher and very dedicated in, in the uh, postbellum period in the 18, I guess, 80s and 90s. Um, she was teaching in, I, I'm pretty sure was an integrated school and really talked about how the most important thing was the education of the masses, that everybody, white, black, whatever, had a right to that. And the other person I'd like to talk to, uh, to uh, I'd like, I would like to talk to, would be my great 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 grandmother Elizabeth Hewlett, about whom I, you know, um, I what the only thing I know about her is what Richard writes in her um, in her autobiography, and she apparently was another one who was white looking, um, and she. Uh, uh, her husband dies sometime in the 1820s, and they own this home on Collect Street, and she apparently builds a building in the rear and then converts the basement of the front house into a bakery and, mm. you know, sells baked goods and gradually, you know, starts to accumulate money. And there's a wonderful um, comment where... Uh, when Lord and Taylor, now just gone out of business, first started in 1835, um, let me just read this. She goes to Lord and Taylor on the opening day because she knew both Mr. Lloyd and Mr. Taylor. So he goes on, she goes on opening day to make an early purchase of a yard of white ribbon to give the boys good luck, for she knew them both well. So Aww. she just seems to me to be an amazing person, you know, with a lot of grit and determination, but must have had, again, a certain elegance, taste about her, you know, buying the white ribbon. I would like to, yeah, I would like to talk to her. Yeah. <laughs> well, the second question re is related to time, meaning a time capsule. What three items would you put into a time capsule that reflect your life and the times you've lived through? So I have a few family photographs, not many, of Peter Guignon, um, Philip Augustus White, and those would go in. Uh, when I was cleaning out my parents' house um, in the early 2000s, um, there was a lot of furniture that had come down from my father. So my, you know, this family. And in particular, there's a wonderful book stand 
So it's not a tiny object, it's a big one. Um, but we have a dictionary on it downstairs. And I don't know, it's been with me for such a long time. And then um, I guess things that I grew up with um, that would reflect the cosmopolitan nature of my upbringing. So <clears throat> my father spent two years in China uh, working on, I think, the cholera epidemic and brought back a lot of uh, porcelain figures. Um, and when we broke up the family house, I grabbed them from my sister. <laughs> my <laughs> sisters, I'm like, these are mine. It was great because they wanted other things, you know? And then there were these metal trays, brass trays. These were from the Middle East um, that you put on legs, you know, huge trays. Um, and they could serve as an end table or a coffee table. And there were three of them. And we each got the one that we wanted. Um, there are all kinds of, um, there were tiles from the Middle East and all kinds of things um, that I would, I grew up with, you know. Um, yeah. So those would go in as well. Yeah. Well, based on the history work that you've done, what are some stories or an era or people you'd like to see dramatized in a historical series or film? And I could see your your family's story would make a very interesting dramatic series. <laughs> so the first thing I would have less on slavery. Um, I think we've kind of been overloaded with slavery stories and they have their place, but I think that you know, they've gotten the limelight, the largest share of light, <clears throat> you know, like 12 years a slave. And um, with the recent one, Emancipation, is that another one? And so forth. Yeah. Um, I would have obviously like to see more of the Black elite. So in my book, um, a family that was very illustrious was the Downing family. And you could start with Thomas Downing, who was the oysterman and who had an oyster house on Broad Street, um, and it catered to city um, officials, city councilors, and so forth. And apparently he would go around passing notes from one table to another. Um, and then his son, George, became a caterer and moved to, uh, New, uh, where'd he move to? He moved to Rhode Island and, um, set up a um, uh, resort. It was called the Seagirt House. And he was very instrumental um, in integrating schools. He was a fervent integrationist and um, he was very close to the Massachusetts politician, Char Charles Sumner, the famous abolitionist. And, you know, there are newspaper accounts who said that Sumner died in his arms. And, you know, he went on, um, the family just was very productive and did a lot. So that I would like more biographies of Black women. So, Sean, you're doing one of Ida B. Wells? Yes. Yeah. I mean, you know, there are just so many. Um, and I think that that would, that would be great. Um, I would like more on... Um, interracial relationships, personal. So I finished reading a novel, Black Cake. I don't know whether you know it. Um, and it's it, the main character. There's nothing interracial about them, but it starts out in the Caribbean with a marriage between a Black Caribbean woman and a Chinese man. And that is my family history on my mother's side um, my grandmother, who was black from Jamaica, and um, uh, uh, Thomas Lee, uh, my grandfather, who came from the new territories in, in China. And so I think that we haven't paid, you know, enough attention. So this is uh, on the level of intimacy, what makes those relationships. And 
even in the antebellum period, um, Graham Hodges wrote, uh, years ago, wrote a, a really compelling article. Um, I can't remember the title, but was it was on the intimate relations between the Irish and African Americans in uh, around the five points, right? Um, yes. And um, liaisons, lasting ones, or marriages, or whatever. I, I would like to see, you know, more of that. Um, and maybe stories that question race. Um, so my example of Collect Street, we like, oh, these are African-Americans, these are Blacks. But, you know, if you come from all these, all four, literally all, all four corners of the world, what does it mean to be Black? What, what do we... What are we talking about when we talk about blackness? Yeah, the perpetual question, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> well, Carla, thank you so much. This has been a wonderful conversation we looked forward to. And um, we are also looking forward to your new book on taste. And uh, we hope to have a conversation about that, too. Yeah, yeah, I'd be happy to. Yeah. Thank you very much for having me. It was a great pleasure. Yeah. Well, thank you. So for our listeners, we invite you to share this episode of Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters with someone you know who would enjoy this conversation. Subscribe to Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters and enjoy past episodes wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Visit our website at michonbostongroup.com backslash Boston Sisters for more information and where you can purchase copies of Black Gotham. You can find our bonus episodes on Women in Power and the Gilded Age wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Sign up for our newsletter to stay up to date on future episodes and bonus content. You can write us at podcast at michonbostongroup.com. Like, and share historical drama with the Boston Sisters on your social media. This is Michonne Boston. And this is Tequina Boston. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters a podcast about historical films and series dramas. Visit our webpage at michonbostongroup.com backslash Boston Sisters. Tell us what historical dramas you're watching. Who knows? We may do a show about it. Sign up for our newsletter, subscribe to the podcast, and share it with the people you know who binge on historical drama. Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters is brought to you by the Michonne Boston Group. The views and opinions expressed on historical drama with the Boston Sisters are those of the speakers and do not represent the positions or views of the Michonne Boston Group, its clients or affiliates. This is Michonne Boston. And this is Tequina Boston. Thank you for listening.